Welcome to Gavias. We have the Archaeology of Mind, Neuroevolutionary Origins of Human Emotion, Part 2. In Part 1, we discussed the goal of the book and some of the broad strokes of Yak Pengsep's theory. So now we get deeper into the seeking system, a vital part of his theory, and discuss the origins of fear. And as we talked about in the first one, we're going to wait until the end to do a big picture, take a look at the book, and we're going right into the contents. The Seeking System So seeking, generally it implies intention, but the kind of simplistic view of what the system does is just it's people or mammals, organisms looking for a reward. But it is significantly more complex than that and more important for the author. So this is the thing that keeps us going. And when the system's inactive, you actually get highly increased rates of depression. And that's just the system itself. When it's active, you have lower rates of depression. So this is something, and this is my addendum to this idea. <laughs> like, there's always talk about humans as being in need of meaning more than some kind of uh, things. So the journey is more important than the reward. So that's kind of the way that it makes sense. And when the system is engaged, it actually alleviates fear as well. It's about obtaining resources, and the way that the author put it is from nuts to knowledge. So all the resources that we could possibly use, even the more ephemeral or metaphorical ones, all of those resources, the seeking system is the means by which we obtain those, but more importantly, the motivation to do so. So we like it when the system is aroused. And like I said, it's you're, you enter a depressive state, mammals enter a depressive state when it's underactive, or when you have repeated failures. Say you're trying to accomplish something, but you have failure after failure after failure. Then the system disengages and you experience depression as a result. But there's a problem on the other side as well. So when it's grossly overactive, then you'll see this connection between uh, the things that you do and the rewards everywhere. So something like breaking a mirror causing 9-11, or one thing that the author brings up is prayer. It's something that you do that you're trying to gain a reward, but you have an overactive seeking system in using those means to try to gain that reward. And the seeking system, importantly, is most aroused right before eating food, not when you're actually eating the food. So you get more dopamine when you're doing the seeking. And the emotional involvement in this process, in this system, is what's really important here. You're not just seeking a reward, like in some kind of a simplistic way, but you're seeking a positive feeling state. And the system itself is about all that the world contains, so it's a really important system. The system itself doesn't really know what it wants. Uh, there was there were other theorists who they used the simple uh, reward mechanism as a means to understand the psychology of a person going through this, but they couldn't explain what a reward was in the brain. What is a reward? What does it mean to a person to have a reward? And others would say that the brain itself is really an organ for learning. That's what it does, but it's actually built on emotional specifics. And fear is an important part in that learning. So something like a firefighter was the example that was brought up, is that the seeking system provides an affect that counteracts the fear that would arise in a firefighter that's going into a burning building. So you get an affect that overrides that, that would have to do with honor and job and, and saving somebody. All those things would be a combination of affects that counteract the fear. Then we move into the next chapter that talks about rage and how all mammals experience rage. And that a good source of information to try to understand this would be to look at animal brains to understand this. People have this curious ability to be able to speak, to be able to talk about <laughs> rage and quell it thereby, which is not something that animals can generally do. And one thing, research on aggression. He references this issue related to research on aggression in general when it comes to humans and how it was kind of chilled for a while because there 
there was this guy who was a researcher who was holding this conference, and he said that the inner cities were like jungles. He was making this comparison that the inner cities were like jungles. And because of the implications in that statement, the entire conference was canceled. <laughs> and it chilled research related to aggression in humans because of the implications. So this author, however, goes into some of the neurochemicals of rage. And a very important point is that the chemicals have different effects in different parts of the brain. So it might have one particular effect on the part of the brain that's dealing with rage, but it could have a very different effect in another part of the brain that's dealing with something else, some other affect. And on top of that, you have all the individual differences related to all these affects and their responses to these chemicals. So hence why it's so difficult <laughs> to create the, the proper cocktails for all the people on Earth. Then there's a discussion about testosterone, obviously a very important chemical, but it makes people more aggressive and assertive, mammals more aggressive and assertive. Women actually become more aggressive and assertive when they're given testosterone. In general, females are better at non-physical violence, and that should be clear if anybody uh, takes a step into social media. And if you get a lesion on the particular parts of the brain that deal with rage, then it will activate these rage centers. One of the big issues long-term that there's been when it comes to studying rage in fMRI scans is that you have to be able to keep your head still. Generally, when people are thoroughly enraged, they don't have the ability to stay still for an fMRI. So it would be easier to study this kind of phenomenon in other mammals. So the whole idea of rage, it's more of a, a complex phenomenon than what might initially be obvious. But rage, like, it's less likely to be a part, a major part of war, the kinds of psychology that goes into war. And there's a difference between things like predatory aggression and rage in general. So you'll have children who might act out anger on an inanimate object, and there are a bunch of implications related to that. But there are different areas of rage that would come out of this, and different separate ideas of aggression and anger that can be differentiated from rage in general. One thing that was brought up was the infanticide, so males who engage in infanticide. It's more likely an aspect of the seeking system than it is just pure rage that overtakes them and causes them to participate in infanticide. And then along those lines, domination itself is, is kind of a separate idea. There's probably no dominant system, but it's a combination of affects that leads to that phenomenon psychologically. Interestingly, female hyenas actually have high testosterone and are, are much more aggressive than males. But even when you have these lesions uh, in the rage systems of the brain, and of course that's a crude way of putting it, it's not quite that simple, but when you have lesions in these areas that are associated with rage, then time and pro-social experiences actually help to mitigate that rage response in animals. Then we get a chapter on the ancestral roots of fear and general fear states, so you can become anxious about becoming anxious. This is something, this anticipatory anxiety is something that is only prevalent in humans as far as we know. But we don't only learn fear. We are afraid of some things at birth, which is a very important thing to understand. So you can arouse fear in animals that are raised in complete safety. You have innate fears that are built in. For rats in particular, they will be afraid of the hair of a predator that they've never seen in their life. And there's one of the just most insane and coolest things about nature that I've heard of on many occasions, toxoplasmosis, in rats that makes them less afraid of cats. So if they get this, they're less afraid of cats. The cats will eat them and then pass the virus through, which will help it propagate. So it'd be like if, uh, if there was a virus that makes us want to make out when we were <laughs> infected with it. We were just much more inclined to make out with somebody. But there's also contextual stimuli uh, that is learned when it comes to fear. So, like, a rat might smell a person repeatedly who is associated with putting them in the cage where they do the fear experiments, and that's something that could start to be a contextual stimuli that is associated with fear. 
But for the author, and something that's really important, is that a lot of the work done on fear is about learning, but not on the fear system that stems from evolution. There are varieties of anxiety in the mammalian brain. There's separation anxiety. There's attachment disorders. There's PTSD, which is probably several systems that are involved in this sort of a thing. And there's going to be this mixture of the contextual stimuli that causes the fear, plus the very deep evolutionary system, the fear system, that has all sorts of affects associated with fear. Then there's a discussion of the amygdala a little bit involved in fear conditioning and distinctions about you know what the amygdala does, how important it is. So like one issue related to children who put themselves in danger to punish their parents, it's not really about the fear system. It's really about something else, different affects that are overtaking it. And there's this reference to a Jack London quote, which is actually, I was just reading this book recently, White Fang, right? Just as a kind of an aside, an easier book to read in the midst of all the other reading that I'm doing. But so it just happened to bring up this Jack London quote, something about that the animals had not learned to be afraid and yet they were afraid because of the thousand lives before them. So it's a really important understanding, you know, for the author of where all this fear comes from and that it's, it has ancestral roots, not just uh, learned roots. Then we go beyond instinct in the next chapter where we talk about uh, lesions in the amygdala and how those lesions will make somebody uh, a mammal docile and go into learning and memory. And we think of these things as intentional processes, but he breaks it down in this chapter and it's actually really important to understand these distinctions. So we learn best when seeking has been aroused. So when you're in the midst of seeking is when you learn the best. But there are some things that you learn instantly. So one example that was brought up here was the Kennedy assassination. You just learn instantly where you were without deliberate determination to learn something. When Kennedy was assassinated, you know, for my generation it would have been 9-11. But it's not something that you consciously figured out. You know, what, where was I when this happened? It was automatic and involuntary. And there are a lot of instant memories that happen that way. And there's a, a distinction here, the explicit and implicit memories. So there are the deliberative ones, the explicit ones, and the implicit ones that are like motor skills. And then also declarative memories is an important category because it's those are the memories that don't have a strong emotional reaction. So they're not likely to have a bunch of affect associated with them. So these are things like math. When you learn 2 plus 2 equals 4, it's not something you had a, a, lot, a lot of emotional involvement with and so, unless somebody punched you in the face after they told you or something. So the amygdala itself is not grand central station. The closer structural part of the brain that would be more like grand central station would be the, the periaqueductal gray. That apparently has more involvement and more processes when it comes to learning. And an important subgroup of that would be fear and how fear works than the amygdala by itself. And there are female-male differences in the amounts of oxytocin that they can take, which creates different fear responses, you know, relative to different stimuli. And this is one thing that brought up, which it might be, it might behoove us, just in general, to separate male and female when when we're talking about psychology, because there's so many serious differences. I'm sure there are cultural differences when it comes to different national origins, and there are going to be different allele frequencies in different populations that are going to affect the way that people learn and the way they experience fear and and different other affects. But one of the clearest distinctions is likely um, between male and female. And that might be something that we need to do when we're doing surveys, when we're doing all sorts of other things, is make that distinction. But there's a case brought up here in 1911. It's a famous case in the discipline that's about implied emotional memory. 
So you had this person who had a lesion on a particular part of the brain, and they were unable to create short-term memories, you know, just like Memento. So they would forget everything as soon as it passed out of working memory. So one thing that they did, whenever they would meet, the researcher and them would meet, they'd shake hands and then go to talking. In one instance, the researcher put a pin in their hand, so when they shook hands, it hurt the person. Now, they couldn't make a new memory. They were incapable of generating a declarative memory event for that for that thing that happened to prevent them from engaging engaging in that behavior. But later when they met again and he went to shake her hand, she recoiled and said, oh no, I'm not going to shake your hand. And then made up a rationalization about how ladies, you know, don't necessarily need to shake hands and giving that as the reason for not shaking the hand that time. So there are a lot of ins and outs when it comes to learning. And then we go into a talk, we have about 22,000 genes, you know, it was estimated much higher originally, but we have about 22,000, it appears, and it's not nearly enough genes to account for every function of the brain when it comes to affect and everything else, but affective arousal is important in in learning, just in general, and fear-related memories, you know, they have a, a particular resonance. So affect is really important when it comes to learning to break all these things down. There's a lot. There's a lot to this this thing. Obviously, we're going to have about, I think we're about halfway through the book now. There are a lot of moving parts when it comes to trying to understand exactly everything that he's trying to demonstrate here and wrap it into a fundamental theory about the way that human psychology works and layer on top of that the lab work and studies, all the empirical stuff that is going to support, suborn, or undermine all of these ideas. So hopefully we have a, a functional working understanding. The The point so far is that the affective brain is likely more vital, more important, and more useful for trying to understand the way human psychology works. So we'll see. Uh, like I said, we're going to keep plugging in some other stuff along the way, but uh, we're going to get through this probably in a couple more parts, and then we're, we're definitely going to have a discussion episode to try to wrap this into a, a broader theory. But you got to love it. I, I just I absolutely love every moment that I've spent with this thing so far. So uh, hopefully it keeps keeps going that way and uh, we'll get it done. Anyway, I'll see you on the next one.